You are listening to sermon audio from Grace Community Church of Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to connect, visit us online at gracecc.net. When I'm worshiping with you, I'm trying to listen to the Spirit like you are and what He's saying, what He's revealing, and He seemed to, to give me a word at least for someone here that just to have courage to be willing to open your heart and to do exactly what we just sang about, to allow God's grace and his truth to wash over you, to bring your sin into the light and to allow him to remove that from you and to give you the hope and joy that we've been singing about. So I hope that's true for every, every one of you, really. You know, in preparing for this message today, I've, for a variety of reasons, been reminded of a trip that Jamie and I took some years ago. It seems like this time of year especially, I know it's kind of sunny today and been a sunny weekend, which has been great, but when it's rainy and dreary and cold, I always think of our trips to Hawaii. I mean, I'm just always going right back there, especially our trips to Maui. And I'll never forget our first trip to Maui. I mean, the first time there, and I wish I could load all of you on a plane and take you over there so you could all experience that if you haven't. It's just, it's, it really is remarkable. It's like entering in another another world, from the weather to, to everything. And all that being said, I remember being over there um, after this you know, glorious day of being in the sun and relaxing and being together. We were walking down this path that was really the boardwalk for all the area hotels. And it was at night, the tiki torches were going, and it was just, it was profoundly cool. And we were hungry. We hadn't eaten dinner. In fact, we'd eaten light the whole day because we were purposely going out to a nice dinner together and we were walking down this path to the restaurant that was down the boardwalk and we came to this one area where it was a meeting area for one of the hotels and there are several of these. In fact, almost every hotel on the boardwalk had it. Just this huge grassy area with where they'd cater these buffets and stuff like that. And sure enough, this was one of those buffets. And there must have been three, 400 people at this buffet and all this food, food of every kind you could imagine out on these tables and we could smell it, we could see it and oh, we were so hungry. You ever been in a situation like that where you're really hungry and you, you see some food, you smell some food, and you go, oh, I just, I want that. Well, I wanna encourage you to be in that posture here this morning and hopefully you come to the preaching and teaching of God's word at least most Sunday mornings hungry and wanting to be fed. And what we're about to embark on is a multi-passage study here in Luke chapter three and four that is a feast of spiritual food. And really there's like 10 sermons at least swimming around in these passages and I get to do one in the time that we have together. But I hope this provokes and stirs you to go back and read these passages and absorb God's truth. Because as a reset for last week, for those of you who weren't here, we looked at John the Baptist now appearing on the scene as the forerunner to Jesus, preaching a message of repentance. And when we really looked at last week, what is repentance all about? Well, it, it is a changing of your mind and your heart. It's a one-time process where you choose to receive Jesus into your life as your Lord and Savior, but then it's an ongoing process of constantly recalibrating, realigning, redirecting your heart to be the same heart as his in terms of your values, your behavior, your thoughts, your motives. It's a process of turning away from our sin and turning towards Jesus. Always about relationships. Repentance is about our relationship with God and our relationships with other people. And this is what it includes. Conviction, confession, forgiveness, reconciliation, restitution, life change. Last week we talked 
about each of those, but really we wanted to put into your hands a resource that Gary Brashears developed for us some years ago that really talks at length about what these look like and how you apply them to your life. We ran out of those last week, but that write-up is once again on the resource table, so I encourage you to grab that if you missed out on getting that last week. And really, all this is possible through our choices and the power of the Holy Spirit, our choices of trusting and obeying him. And last week, I left you with this, that this week, we were going to look at how is this even possible? I mean, why is Jesus not only our example, but the one who gives us the ability to actually do this? Well, it comes down to the reality that he is the Messiah, And he is uniquely qualified to be the Messiah. And that's what we're going to look at here this morning. So let's dive right into the continuation of this passage. Luke chapter 3, 21 through 22. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love. With you... I am well pleased, which is amazing. But there is something right out of the gate that should cause us to ponder for a minute. If the baptism that John the Baptist was preaching was a baptism of personal repentance, personally owning and turning away from your own sin and brokenness, what sins are Jesus repenting of? Because he's getting baptized. And the answer is, for those of you who know your Bibles, none. Jesus was sinless. There was no brokenness at all within him. That is, in part, what qualified him to be the Messiah, as we'll look at here in just a little bit. But that's A-level theology. We die for that. That is not something we dilute, we debate, we consider, we negotiate on. Jesus was, was sinless. So then why was he getting baptized is the very reasonable question. And there's, there's many answers to that. Number one, he was endorsing, he was validating John the Baptist's message by doing that. But also, he was identifying with us. Because the baptism that Jesus provides for us, this full baptism of repentance is mentioned here right in the passage that preceded this that we looked at last, last week. Jesus will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire, meaning that he will change you from the inside out. He changes the core of what makes you, you, through his, his spirit baptizing you, washing you. And that's why we have outward baptism, water baptism, like I mentioned to you earlier in the service and like we'll do next February, is we're show, this coming February, we're showing that an inside change, an inside transformation has happened by water baptism. And so Jesus is identifying with us as the one who will provide the means by truly changing us from the inside out. But this is also to show fulfillment of God's plan and purposes. When the world was broken through Adam and Eve's sin, right out of the gate, God promised that he was going to someday redeem, repair, restore, renew things to the way he always intended them to be. And now here comes Jesus in fulfillment of God's promises. But also, though, Jesus got baptized in order to show that he had the endorsement and the empowerment of the Father and the Holy Spirit. And let's back up once again and look at what's said here. 
So this is a beautiful picture of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. One God, three persons. This is one of the many passages that teaches us this truth. And again, this is a non-negotiable as well. But look at what is expressed to Jesus. You are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. Do you think it mattered to Jesus what the Father said here? What is about to come his way? He is going to be attacked. He is going to be accused of blasphemy later in his life, in the months and years to come, which is the most serious sin someone could be accused of. He's going to be accused of being demon-possessed. He's going to be called crazy. He's going to be labeled a drunk and a glutton, not to mention the temptations that are about to come his way. People are going to question his legitimacy. We don't know whose son he is. And on it goes. Do you think it mattered for his father to say these things to him? And the answer is absolutely yes. Do you think those words matter to us? Has someone in your life ever said this to you? I love you. I am proud of you. You can do this. Parents, if you're a parent, you have the unique opportunity to be able to speak these life-giving words into your kids. Dads, you especially have this opportunity to speak this into your kids' lives. When I was confronted with this reality many years ago, I went home, I sat down, I carved out time, and I wrote a letter to each of our three kids and told them specifically, I love you, I'm proud of you, and you can do this. And I sat down with each of them when they were old enough to understand it, and we read that letter together, and I put it in their hands, because someday I am not going to be with them. And I want them to have in writing and to always know what their dad thought about them. And some of you may be processing this and, and having some regrets, like, well, you know, I, I missed this opportunity with my kids. You know what? Adult kids need to hear this too. It is never too late. I have a friend years ago who in his early 20s had everything our culture would say was success. He was a leader in his organization. He had quickly risen up through the ranks. He was highly educated. He'd gotten his doctorate in his 20s. He had all these accolades, all this recognition. On the outside looking in, everybody would say, that is exactly who I want to be like. And then he shipwrecked his life, so to speak. He gave into some brokenness in his life, got ensnared in pornography, put his marriage at risk, put his job at risk, almost lost them both. And I remember talking with him and processing all this and him thinking through, man, how did I get to this place? And I remember in our conversations, he said, you know, I realize I've been trying to live my whole life to please my dad. My dad never told me he loved me never told me he was proud of me, never said he believed in me, and I realized that is what's been fueling my ambition, fueling my performance, fueling the direction of my life. I have been longing just for someone to say this. Because even if you're not a parent, even if you don't have kids or grandkids, you can come alongside someone else and speak this into their life 
and God to use it powerfully in their life. Because we need to hear this. Jesus needed to hear it. We go on and we see that there's this now genealogy that begins to describe Jesus' heritage. It says Jesus himself was 30 years old when he began his ministry. He was the son, so it was thought, of Joseph, the son of Heli. And then on goes this list. There are 76 names in this genealogy. 38 of them don't appear anywhere else in the Bible. Half of them sound like they're Jedi Knights from some Star Wars movie, right? I mean, they're just these, these names, right? And at first glance, this can appear to be profoundly irrelevant and boring, if we can be honest. When you come to genealogies in the Old Testament and New Testament, what is our tendency to do? Ooh, turn the page, flash the screen, let's go on to something else, right? But they're there for a reason, and actually there's profound spiritual truth and practical realities in each one of them for us. And I know I'm having to make a case here. Some of you are thinking, oh yeah, great. I'm gonna go home today, and before I read a genealogy, I'll read the phone book. That's equally exciting, right? And some of you are going, what's a phone book? And for those of you who don't know, a phone book, well, Google this, Google phone book, and a phone book is what we used when we didn't have Google, okay? So all that being said, it just, it appears just so lame. Why would you read a genealogy and what does it matter? Well, again, making a case here, back in the first century, back in those cultures, genealogies were profoundly important because it's where you got your sense of identity, your sense of belonging, it was your heritage. And really, it proved that you were you. In issues of legality, inheritance, what have you, you needed to know who your descendants were. And you needed to know, really, your, your genealogy, your, your heritage. And in an honor-shame culture, it was profoundly important not just to think about your life in the here and now, but to think about not only where you came, but who would be coming after you? We don't always think that way. Many of us live our lives for us and for the here and now with no thought to future generations. Not true. Back in the first century. And so genealogies mattered. And in this genealogy, by the way, which goes all the way back to the very beginning, there are some pretty big names. The son of David. The son of Abraham. The son of Noah. Those three names have some very significant things in common. Number one, these are all people who God made covenants with, gave promises to. And what this is saying is Jesus is not only the recipient of these promises, but he will eventually fulfill all of them. I wrote this, he fulfills all the promises of God and was reminded by some of our preaching team that Yes, Jesus ultimately fulfills all the promises of God, but some of those promises are yet to be fulfilled. But let's just think through this together. One of the commitments, one of the covenants that God made to David was that one of his descendants would always sit on the throne of Israel. Here comes Jesus. The covenant that God made with Noah was in that time, the world was filled with brokenness and it was vile and there was just, there was no going back and so God in his rightful, righteous, patient judgment finally decided, okay, this has got to end and so he floods the world but he saves a remnant through the ark, right? Jesus is the better ark because now when God finally fulfills the, his ultimate judgment after he has waited for thousands and thousands of years for all people to have the chance to repent, when he rightfully does judge the world, those who will be saved will be those who know and love Jesus. He's the better ark. 
And then finally Abraham, God promised him a land to make him into a great nation and to eventually bless all people through him and here comes Jesus, all people, all nations are blessed through Jesus and some of that is is still yet to be fulfilled but you get the idea. Jesus fulfills the promises of God, that's what this genealogy is declaring but also it declares this, that he's the son of Adam and the son of God which is remarkable because what that's saying is he's one of us. That's why this is traced all the way back to Adam, the first human being. Jesus is fully human. And that is profoundly encouraging on many, many levels. But here's one just specific to this genealogy. Think through with me just what we know of the families, the people that are represented in that list. Any brokenness? Any dysfunction in those families? David, a liar, an adulterer, a murderer, a betrayer. Noah, who got drunk. Abraham, who lied twice, not once, twice about who his wife was in order to save his own skin. And on it goes. You know what's so profoundly encouraging about this genealogy, Jesus' genealogy on his human side? It's that it's broken and dysfunctional just like yours and mine, which means that God works across all generations in all kinds of family, right in the middle of all kinds of brokenness and dysfunction, and yet he still fulfills his purposes and his plan. So no matter how jacked up, how messed up, how screwed up your family is, even your current situation, God can work through that. Here's proof. But it gets better. He's God. He's fully human, and he's fully God. When it says he's the son of God, it doesn't mean he was created. It doesn't mean he was birthed. It means he is equal to God, he is a peer to God, he, he is God. Which is remarkable, because this is really what Luke is trying to help us understand, is that Jesus, at the end of the day, is uniquely qualified to be the Messiah because he's fully one of us, and he's fully God. Who cares? This is why, because all that is about to be put to the test. Luke chapter four. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, if you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And now I want you to watch in each of these temptations how Jesus is responding how he responds. Jesus answered, it is written, and this is from Deuteronomy in the Old Testament, man shall not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It's been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you will worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, once again from Deuteronomy, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. 
If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. And now Satan will quote one of the Psalms. He will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered once again from Deuteronomy, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. Every single time Satan tempts Jesus, he trusts and obeys God. And there's something very, very important you need to understand. We are never tempted by God. Scripture is explicitly clear about that. However, there will be times that God allows us to be tested, and he does test us. And what you need to understand is that when God tests us, he always wants you to pass. When Satan tempts us, he always wants you to fail. And that's what happens here. And let's look at how he makes these runs at Jesus. And again, there's probably 10 sermons swimming around in just these verses we just looked at. But number one, what does he appeal to? He appeals to his basic appetites. He's, he appeals to Jesus' hunger. Can you imagine how hungry someone would be after 40 days? You ever been hungry? I mean, really hungry? I get hungry after 40 minutes. I can't imagine 40 days, right? And so Satan comes at him, and he will come at you through your basic appetites, food, drink, sex, pleasure, all good things intended by God to be used in the ways that he wants us to use them so that we can be blessed and protected and truly enjoy. But those things get distorted all the time, do they not? Food gets abused by us. We eat too much of it. Drink gets abused by us. We get drunk. Sex gets distorted by us in all kinds of ways. Pornography. Anything outside a lifelong commitment between one man and one wife for life. And on it goes. And by the way, for those of you who are, you know, spin cycling this and processing this whole idea of Satan, please understand Satan is not this little guy in a red suit with a pitchfork who runs around poking people like our culture represents him. He is an enemy. He is real. He hates God. He hates you. And he will do anything he can to destroy you. And so he'll come after you and tempt you with power and prosperity like he did Jesus. Very literally, he was offering Jesus a shortcut around the cross. You don't need to go to the cross. All this can be yours. And the reality is, unfortunately, all of us can really be tempted to find our value in our stuff, in our money, in our bank account, in our retirement account, in all sorts of things. You know, there's that saying, everybody has their price. What are you willing to give in order to get? God wants me happy, so I'm gonna do this. I know it's distorted, I know it's broken, I'm gonna do it anyway. Or God's a good God. He really wants me to have this. Or even, you know what, God, you owe me. I should have this. And then he appeals to Jesus' pride. Did God really say that in the Psalms? Then you really need to, you need to put that to test. You know, God, if you really love me, so it goes through our minds at times, then you'll do this for me. 
and, and on it goes. And you know, what's chilling to me and sobering to me is that Satan knows the Bible. He distorts scripture and misapplies it with Jesus. Did you, did you see that? Yeah, Jesus, I've been doing my devotional out of the Psalms and it says right here, if you do this, God will do this for you. Complete distortion of what that passage actually says and an absolute wrong application and it will come your way over and over again. It will come your way through well-intentioned people, not even the evil one himself. Well-intentioned people who inadvertently are misusing and abusing God's word and misapplying it. Or it will come from people who have not so good motives, who are trying to take away your understanding of God's truth, again, by distorting it and misapplying it, and on it goes. But he also goes after Jesus' identity. Twice he says, if you are the Son of God, well, why would he tempt him that way? Because it's effective. Because your identity determines your biography. Or to put it another way, who you think you are determines how you will live. And once again, this gets very practical real quick. If you think of yourself as a victim, you will go through your life seeing life as a victim. If you see yourself as a good person, I'm inherently a good person, then you will settle for morality and possibly empty religion to boot. If you think because of what's been done to you, you're damaged goods and beyond help and hope and repair, then you will stay stuck in that and you will miss out on the redemption and the reality of what God has for you because the reality is in the gospel, no matter what you've done or what's been done to you, what matters most is what Christ has done for you, what Jesus says about you and therefore it matters how you and I live our lives, what we love, and what we worship, because the third angle that, Jesus, that Satan takes with Jesus is that he goes after what he worships. And when we give in to temptation, worship is what gets us into trouble. But worship is what also gets us out of trouble. Because you see, you will be tempted, like Jesus was by the evil one, to take a good thing in your life and to elevate it to be the ultimate thing or an ultimate thing in your life. And you can take virtually any good thing in your life and it can become distorted and it can become an object of your worship, your focus, your loyalty, your affection. And this is something we constantly have to do battle with. But you can you can trust and obey God like Jesus did because you have the same Holy Spirit that he did. So you and I need to stop settling for brokenness. Stop buying into these false identities from our past and remember who we are in Jesus and tap into the Holy Spirit who is not a thing, he's not Casper the friendly ghost, he is God. And he will enable us with our own choices to trust and obey God, to be able to trust and obey God. Or to put it another way, a 
defining question this morning is which Adam are you following? Because this genealogy that ends in tracing Jesus back to Adam is very purposely followed by his temptation. And there's a huge reset going on here. This is like a major reset of Genesis 3. When the first Adam was tempted by the evil one, he failed. He settled for brokenness and sin, and death and disease has been in our world ever since. But the second Adam, Jesus, resisted temptation and trusted and obeyed. And that's the Adam that you can live like because he empowers you to do that. And if you choose to worship anyone and anything by your priorities, by your values, what have you, other than Jesus, you're going to be a very hungry person. You're going to continually look for more and look for more and look for more. And eventually you just, you end up famished. But in Jesus, there is a feast awaiting you. So as we walked by this gathering of, as it turned out, Verizon employees, three or four hundred of them. The company had flown them to Maui, Hawaii and put on this big thing for them and they were having this huge banquet. We walked by, we could smell the food, we could see it. Oh, it just, oh, I so badly wanted it. And a couple employees come walking up to us and we just start small talking and, you know, who are you? And how, you've been to Maui before and we're talking to them and stuff. And they noticed that I was looking at the food and <laughs> probably because I was staring. And I said, you hungry? I said, well, yeah. And I said, oh, come on in. There's plenty for everybody. I said, ah, well, no, you know, we're not Verizon employees. And it, no, it's like, no, 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 really. Come on in. It's, it's yours to have. And they took off the Verizon badges and they gave them to us. I said, if anyone gives you a problem, just show them that. And tell them I'm the guy who gave it to you. He happened to be one of the executives who was putting it on. I must have gained 10 pounds in one meal. Uh, it was... It was epic. <laughs> it's an oversimplification, but isn't God's grace like that? I'm not worthy of God's grace. God, do you know the brokenness in my life? Do, do you know who I am? Do you know what I've done? Do you know what's been done to me? Do you know the pain in my heart, the pain I've caused other people? Do you know my past? Yeah. Come to the table. Come feast. This is for you. It's a free gift. Will you receive it? Will you come in instead of being on the outside? What an amazing God. A God who has set us free from our past, who sets us free from our brokenness so we can be who he always intended us to be. And so we're gonna sing about this amazing God. Our worship team will come forward and as they do so, the table awaits you off to the sides. Remind yourself of who you are in Jesus, what he's done for you. Think through these words that we're singing and the reality that is yours to have. And let's trust and obey and celebrate and love him together because he first loved us. So we love him. Jesus, thank you that you were so faithful and good. You rescue us from brokenness. So God, would we have the courage to bring that brokenness into your light? Would we call it what it is? Stop pretending, stop hiding it, stop looking over our shoulders hoping no one will notice. Would we just call it what it is and choose to walk away from it 
through your power, through your love for us, through your grace. Thank you, Lord. Thank you that you have freed us. We celebrate and soak in that freedom now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to Sermon Audio from Grace Community Church. For more information about service times and ways to connect, visit us online at gracecc.net.